all these things that drive us and uh, are, are meant as gifts to us can oftentimes distract us from the true gift that's found in Christmas. The fact that Christmas, seen in isolation, is an incomplete story. Christmas is an important part of the redemptive story of God through his son Jesus, but it's not the whole story. And I think when we approach Christmas just as the holiday that stresses us out, makes us fatter, makes us poorer, makes us more joyful, maybe, we miss the opportunity that we have to enjoy God more, to lean into the gift that God has given through his son Jesus. And the main thing I want to focus on today is that all of us who are born will one day die physically. Everybody born will one day die physically. But very few people who are born are born to die. And Jesus Christ was born to die. That was his aim and his purpose. It wasn't just to come and live a good and wholesome life to be a good example for us. The aim and purpose and mission of Jesus was to be born, to live, and to be put to death as a part of God's sovereign plan. So if you take nothing else away from this sermon this morning, I want you to take away this, that Jesus was born to die so that in him we might live. That is the gift of Christmas. That is the joy of Christmas. When we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's more than just what good gifts are we going to get. Rather, it's an interrupter that helps us to focus on the greatest gift that has already been given. And so the first week of this series, God with us, the first week we talked about the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was born into time and space to a mother and father, and he was human, 100% human. Many of us like to either focus on the humanity of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus. It's hard for our little minds to wrap around the idea that he was 100% man, 100% God. But it was necessary for him to be completely human in order for him to be the perfect sacrifice. But also, he was 100% God. And Pastor John did a phenomenal job last week walking for us and helping us to see how Jesus is the second and perfect Adam. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to go to c3.church and go to our sermon section and listen to that sermon. And so Jesus, fully God, fully man, human so that he can bear with us, understand us, intercede for us, be our high priest, represent us, be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, and fully God so that he was perfect and blameless without sin, able to understand our plight, but able to endure it without giving in and giving up into sin. And so the fully God, fully man was born in order that he might die, so that in his death we would find life. That's the gift. So this morning I want to pick up on the story of not long after Jesus was born, when he was visited by wise men, some called them the Magi. Quite honestly, Tradition has like a number of how many guys came, where they were from, all that. But I want to look at the gold here in Matthew, not just the literal gold that it talks about, but just the beauty that's found in Matthew chapter 2, 1 and 2 in verse 11. So if you have your Bible with you, and if you don't have one, you can grab one of ours on the chairs around you. But open with me to Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And we'll jump ahead to verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so we see these non-Jewish magi, these wise men, these leaders, being able to identify the coming of Messiah and then going to that place of his birth. If you'll remember in the covenant God made with Abraham that Pastor John talked about and I mentioned before, that Abraham was to be his offspring, were to be a blessing not just to the people of Israel, but to all the nations. And so as Abraham then, his promises being fulfilled, these, these wise men come and they seek out this baby. And they come and bring three different gifts. Gold is a precious metal. We still value it highly today. Although our money is no longer based on the gold standard, it's still something that people collect. If you watch uh, fear-generated news, um, they'll tell you to not invest in the market, but invest only in gold, silver, and for some of you, Bitcoin. But gold, a precious metal, and that precious metal was given to kings as an offering to kings thus acknowledging the right for this baby to one day rule. But they didn't just stop at monetary gifts. They also came and they brought to him incense, frankincense. And this incense was used in temple worship. It was utilized by the Jewish people when they gathered in the temple to worship their God. They would burn this incense. This incense would also be mixed with oil so that it might be utilized in the anointing of the high priests. And so this gift that they bring is not only an expensive incense, fragrant offering, and a use for worship, but it was also signifying that Jesus himself was one that was acceptable to God, and therefore later we would see he would become qualified and adequate as our high priest as well. But the last gift is an interesting gift. This isn't one that mothers today would register for. Myrrh. While it did have some stimulant properties that people could utilize and ingest to um, have a caffeinated-like effect, the primary use of myrrh was for embalming of the dead, to preserve bodies. And so we see this precious metal given to kings. We see this incense that was given and used in worship and through anointing. And then we see and find this gift given to Mary after the birth of her son, myrrh. Can you imagine showing up at a baby shower with a casket? Something symbolizing and signifying preparation for death? Now, did they, these magi know what they were doing? I don't want to go too far because as I was researching and studying this, there are so many interpretations all over the map on this. But some of the more trustworthy scholars who are much older and wiser than I have indicated that throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, the prophecies made about this Messiah were clear that he was to die. And while the Jewish people often mistook him because they wanted a warrior king that would destroy the Romans and enable them and empower them to then have rule over all other nations, those who read and understood the prophecies would know that Jesus, the Messiah, was born to die. And so he's acknowledged as a king. He's acknowledged as a holy high priest and he's acknowledged as one that would die. Jesus was born to die. 
And it's in this death of Jesus that in him we might live. If Jesus was not fully human, he would not be an acceptable human sacrifice in place for you and I as our substitute. If he were not fully God, he would not be perfect and holy and set apart because through birth, through the the seed of man, then passes on the sin of man. Yet with the Holy Spirit interceding and impregnating Mary, that was able to be overcome so that the perfection of God might be able to be put into a man. So that as a perfect God and perfect man, he was able to live, die, and rise again. That's important for us, but it's not new. This Christmas story isn't a new idea. The issue of sacrifice wasn't new to the Hebrew faith. In fact, I want to take you back to Exodus chapter 12. And full disclosure, in a year or so, we'll be back on this passage again because I intend, Lord willing, after we're done with the Gospel of Mark, to teach through Exodus. But this is important for us to understand as we're looking forward to Christmas. And listen, when we talk about death, If we don't see the victory of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the newness of life that Christ brings, then this death is only sad. But the purpose of sacrifice was not only to show the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the justification of God. It was also to expose the gravity of sin. The spilling of blood to cover sin was to show us, to illustrate the depths and costliness of sin. That sin is life-taking and must receive life in order to be covered so that we can then earn life back through Christ. And so in Exodus chapter 12, as God's people had been enslaved for many centuries by the Egyptians, God had been bringing a series of plagues to the nation of Egypt so that the Pharaoh might release his people. And in the tenth and final plague, he prepares the way by instituting the Passover to his people. And I want to jump real quick to the end of verse 12, just so that you can circle or underline. If your conscience is clear about marking your Bible a bit, then this is important because all of this narrative, everything going on before it and afterwards, is because of this, where the Lord says, I am the Lord. When we talk about at Christ Community Church wanting to realign our worship to make it God-centered rather than man-centered, the purpose and under-narrative that we have is God is the Lord. Not you, not I. We don't make him to be the Lord. We don't make him the Lord of our life. God is the Lord. Either we are worshiping towards that truth or we're running away from that truth. He doesn't need us to worship him so that he gets made into the Lord. We worship him because he is the Lord. And so as he's instituting this Passover, as he is setting the standard of what would be required for him to pass over these houses of those that belong to him, we see it under the orchestration of God and his will, not man and our will. And that's an important way to read and understand the Bible. It changes things for us. It makes the good news good news. A lot of times the way we read the Bible is more about man-centered way of what can we do to be made right with God, but really the narrative of the Bible is what God has done to make us right with himself. And then how do we then live into that and enjoy that? So in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This moment of sacrifice, this moment of remembrance, this moment of worship, this moment of deliverance is so substantial that it reorients their entire year. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Perfection. It should be no limitations or blemishes on this lamb. It should be a perfect, most life-giving specimen. Not the weakest one, not the runt, the most valuable one. You shall take the one that is of most value as an offering. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. That final burning, anything that remains, is like a burnt sacrifice unto the Lord. Acknowledging that he is the Lord. We are doing this in accordance with the Lord. We are going to obey because he is God and we are not. He is the deliverer. We are the deliveree. He is the one that ordains and commissions and orchestrates the means and methods of deliverance for his people from the beginning until the end. Some of you will be relieved today. Because you've been believing that your deliverance is basically up to you and your decisions. And today I hope to shift your eyes to the greatest gift ever given to God's son Jesus, who became the Passover lamb, so that you are forgiven and can live into it. And so this preparation, this, this moment of the Lord's display of power in preparation of these lambs, to acknowledge that we are blemished, but those things are perfect. We will take that perfect one and we will kill it to mark it with blood, to symbolize and to expose the gravity and consequence of sin and the perfection and otherness, holiness of God. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. I know a few of you have been in the military and you've been in mess halls. I've only seen the military on movies. But I've eaten quickly just because I'm husky and I don't like to waste time. Especially during basic training, right? You have, you have a certain amount of time, a certain amount of food you can eat, and you get it done. You get after it. And what he's saying is, what we're doing is symbolizing God is our deliverer. God does not waste time. God is faithful to accomplish what he's doing, and we're going to be ready to go as soon as God says we're ready to go. Now, I'm not advocating you speed eat your Christmas Eve meal or your Christmas dinner, but I am saying one thing we can take from the people of Israel is the urgency that God placed upon them because where they were was not their home. And where we are, friends, is not our home. I think one of the main reasons we get sad and depressed and lonely and everything else is because we live as peacetime dwellers when all we're doing is awaiting the return of our king. And Advent is a reminder that he will keep his promises and he will come back. And so as the people are preparing, he says, and you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover, end of verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. Not the people's Passover, the Lord's. The Lord has orchestrated it. He has made it. He has given it. 
as a gift to his people to obey and therefore to enjoy and in their enjoyment to experience the consequence and power and deliverance of God. And so as they prepare the way, as they get ready, they enjoy the Lord's Passover. Not mankind's Passover, not the Jewish people's Passover, the Passover of the Lord. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so as we see, if you continue reading, this does occur And the firstborn of the male animals and the male children are all killed in these homes in one night. God is a God who does what he says he is going to do. Therefore, faith, what is faith but the confident assurance of what we hope for is going to happen, the evidence of things not yet seen. Therefore, faith in God is the deliverance of mankind. Because God is faithful and consistent and remains faithful to his promises. And so the people of Israel, they go and cover the doorposts as they are commanded. The Spirit of God comes and destroys, strikes down these people. And those who have the blood of the Lamb, the unblemished perfect Lamb, covering the doorposts of their home, the Spirit of death passes over that house. The narrative is the same from the beginning of the Bible when mankind rebels against God and rejects God that the consequence, the wages of sin, is death. That's not just a New Testament reality. That's an ongoing reality from Genesis 3 and on. Death must occur because of the holiness of God has been betrayed by his holy creation. And as his holiness has been betrayed, we then uh, are missing out the opportunity to walk in unity and connectivity with God. One of the greatest brokenness and saddest parts of The narrative of mankind's sin is that we miss out on what we're really missing out on. You see, many people want to trust in Christ because they would rather not go to hell. While that is a smart, logical progression, that's not the primary consequence of sin. The primary consequence of sin is the absence of God himself. The communion with God, the nearness of God, the forgiveness of God, the strength of God, the endurance of God, the long-suffering of God, the power of God. And so I don't want to just look at the death of Jesus because he was born to die as the alleviation of sin. I want to look at the death of Jesus as the power of God for the forgiveness of sin. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did not remain dead, but he rose three days later from sin, death, and Satan. To divorce Christmas from Easter is a great error and makes Christmas more about you and I than about the Lord who is the Lord. Christmas is God's gift to God's glory for the good of mankind. Christmas is God's faithfulness to keep his promises to usher in a way for us to be made right with him. It it provides a way and a venue and a vehicle for God to be both just and justifier. As we see with Abraham, God makes a covenant with himself, not with Abraham. 
We see Abraham's cast into a deep sleep. He sees the animals cut in half, the blood in the middle, and then God with himself walks through that and makes a covenant upon himself. Our hope for Christmas is not based upon our ability to be good, unlike the, the world's way of experiencing Christmas. Christmas isn't for us to act right and get better and do well. Christmas is an example that we cannot, so God did. And that's where the beauty of Christmas begins to bring its pressure upon us, where we're then liberated from the selfish consumption to gracious benevolence and generosity. At the beginning of John, we see John the Baptist talking about, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Declaring and prophesying prophetically, stating that this Jesus who comes to be baptized is that sacrificial lamb. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when the Apostle Paul is correcting the church in Corinth for the incestuous relationship that a man is having with his stepmother in the church. That he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In this dealing with the sinful person, he is talking about and identifying the fact that the leaven, as they are speaking of it, is a symbol for sin that comes and expands and grows. And that's why sin must be dealt with seriously and intentionally. Paul is acknowledging Christ as the head of the church. Passover um, is the practice in his mind fully fulfilled in the purpose in the person of Jesus Christ. As, he ta- as you see in, in Exodus 12, there's this cleansing of the home, preparing the way for the Passover in the same way Paul is saying, let us deal with sin directly and openly and consequentially because of Christ. The beauty of Christ as our Passover lamb is not only is there a symbol of sin, but there's a great representation of rescue and, and salvation. Therefore, that we are, because of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, able to be set apart as holy, other different, made right, that God through Christ has made a way through the gift of Jesus for you and I to be forgiven and acceptable to God. And through that acceptance of God, of us, through his son Jesus, we are then able to boldly approach the Father in heaven, not because we've made ourselves right with God, but because God in his power through his son has made us right with himself. And so when we read scriptures that I memorize and, and I preach at you. It's not because I'm just, in case of emergency, breaking over, open this test tube of verse. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 then begins to bear weight. The 2 Corinthians 5.21 isn't merely a Good Friday or an Easter Sunday verse. It is now a Christmas verse. Understanding that the intentionality of our Father, sending his Son, fully God and fully man, to live a life we could not live, enduring many temptations of all kinds, but being found acceptable because of God within him to resist the devil and see him flee from him. We see this perfect sacrifice, living a life to the point of obedience, even the obedience of death on a cross, becoming a curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Christmas gift for you this year is you may need to understand for the first time and really be rescued That the way of forgiveness is not found within you or within me or within us. We cannot make ourselves forgiven. You cannot earn forgiveness. You cannot work for forgiveness. You cannot work your way to being forgiven. We all need to be forgiven. Have you ever experienced forgiveness? Where you're guilty, 
But the person that you are guilty against says, I do not hold it against you. And to the best that they are able to, they really live into that. And the way that we begin to really live into being a forgiving person is when we understand the cost of God's forgiveness of us. And when we have a low view of the cost of God's forgiveness of us, we have a very hard time for forgiving people who have wronged us in a way that we think is of more depth and consequence. As we grow in our understanding by looking at the Passover lamb and the blood of our Passover lamb Jesus on the cross and the severity of our sin being exposed in his perfection, we're then to be able to lean into the fact that we are deeply and greatly forgiven. And if we are deeply and greatly forgiven, we are then empowered not only by Christ's applied forgiveness in us, but the Spirit of God within us to empower us and embolden us to walk into forgiveness. Some of you are unable to forgive because you are not convinced that you are forgiven. If you're not convinced that you are forgiven, but you believe that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again, then I would point you back to the gift of Jesus on the cross. Quit trying to add to his sacrifice. The sacrifice that is required is an unblemished, perfect, faultless lamb. None of us here meet that qualification. And so if you are looking to your own goodness, your own righteousness to bring deliverance of your soul, you'll not only not find it, but then you'll experience despair and hook into addiction and to fear, and to doubt, and to ungodliness, and you will start self-medicating and alleviating any of that pressure, because in in reality, your hope for salvation, you're trying to find in the mirror, And, and the beauty of Christmas is that it shifts the focus from the mirror to the manger, because the way of the manger is eventually the way of the cross, And the way of the cross is eventually the way of the grave. And in the grave, we see death has been put to death because the alleviation of that dead body raised again by the power of God then alleviates the the sin has been dealt with, the rescue has been purchased, and through faith it is then applied. So number one, the way of forgiveness is not found within us. Number two is this, our only hope for forgiveness is found in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus I'm building upon it. I know it's like, is that the same thing? Yes. I'm nearly going to say about the same thing three times because I believe many of our sin issues we're dealing with in believers are from the fact that they don't, they're not convinced that they're forgiven. And so you're trying harder to earn or keep forgiveness when it's already been purchased and applied. And as you're trying to earn and keep forgiveness, you're finding it very impossible to give forgiveness to somebody else. And therefore, as that unforgiveness, I don't know if that's really a word, but as that non-forgiveness manifests in our lives, the gravity of our own sin becomes even more apparent. Because if you're bringing judgment against another person's sin, you have to be aware of your own. And so until you are convinced and find your only hope of forgiveness found in the blood of the Lamb, That's your only hope. I talk to so many people who want to get themselves right and then come to God. No, that's backwards. Come to God and be found right because of Jesus. 
Come to God and experience profound and consequential and eternal forgiveness. Come to Jesus and know that that baby born in a manger, flawless and perfect, accused and beaten and murdered as an adult, dead and buried and now seated at the right hand of the Father for his second advent when he comes again to bring judgment on the living and the dead, to bring salvation to those who are longing and waiting. Live into that. Let's not waste another Christmas. Let's not lose meaning in Christmas. Let's not disconnect Christmas from the hope we have on Easter Sunday. Let us view this opportunity to come and say, through my sin I get a gift, and the greatest gift I get is God. And maybe today that's you just saying, I don't believe that yet. Or maybe I know that up here, but in my heart, I don't trust it. I don't enjoy it. I don't lean into it. And may your confession be the first step towards that renewed enjoyment of him. Stop hiding. Stop trying to make yourself right. Stop believing that your own blood, sweat, and tears is what's going to redeem you from God. Right? It doesn't work. Many people I know who struggle with doubt and anxiety and depression and addictions, infidelity, deep in the root and the core of who they are, are not convinced that they can, and if they're in Christ, are forgiven. They're not convinced that they can be forgiven, and they're not convinced that they are forgiven. And so they live on this roller coaster of good days and bad days rather than God days. Days that you don't do as well as you feel like you ought, God's got it. Days that you feel like you're killing it, God's got that too. Thank God. That's worship. Confessing sin now isn't going to make another offering for our sin. Confessing sin is agreeing with God that we have missed his mark and that Jesus Christ has paid for it. That's worship. It's value. You trying to pay for your own sin is actually blasphemy. Trying to be right, make yourself right before a holy God, rather than living into the fact that Christ has made you right, you're saying something wrong about God. Maybe not with your words but with the way you're living. And so the last point is a question. Get a little rabbinical on you. How would your life be different if you really began to live into this forgiveness? This forgiveness is eternal. It's all-encompassing. It's powerful. It's life-changing. It's liberating, meaning it frees you from your addictions. Maybe for the man who's sitting in front of the computer on his smartphone about to look at something he knows that will dishonor God and his wife, he can say, I'm already forgiven, therefore I don't have to anymore. For the woman obsessed in the mirror for trying to make sure she appears perfect when everything on the inside isn't, what if she began to believe the narrative, I'm already forgiven, therefore I don't have to appear like I'm not? What about for the student who is about to send another Snapchat or image or something else out to the world trying to find acceptance and redemption and meaning and purpose that they began to understand through Christ, I'm accepted by the king of the universe. I'm adopted in as a son or daughter. Therefore, I don't have to earn the pleasure or approval of my peers. How would your life be different? Maybe for the addict, trying to numb the fact that you're not good enough. Maybe you just lean to the fact that you're not. You never will be. But Jesus was. And Jesus is. So you stop trying to fix yourself and go to the fixed one, the fixer. How would your life be different? 
So many people are afraid to extend forgiveness and live into that forgiveness because they believe they have to be the functional savior for other people. And here's what I mean. They believe if they let up on that person, that person is going to go off the rails. And I'm not saying get rid of accountability or anything else, but many of you are trying to live as a functional savior for somebody else. You cannot save what needs to be saved. You can love that person, you can point that person to Jesus, you can encourage that person, but ultimately what needs to be saved, you cannot save, but you know who can. I struggle with anxiety, I struggle with worry, and so every time that starts welling up, I try to make a habit not even disciplined yet, because we're 100% disciplined to our habits. Make a habit when I feel the symptoms of anxiety or thoughts come on, I let that be an invitation to prayer. When I feel a temptation come on, I don't run from God, I bring God into it. Wow, God, you saw that. I thought that. I've been thinking this. I've been desiring this. Lord, I know you have better for me, and I don't believe that right now. Start going to the Father in heaven who is able to forgive your sins and set you free. How would your life be different if you actually began to live into that forgiveness? How would your marriage be different? How would the way you parent be different? How would your Christmas be different? If you accepted and leaned into the fact that God made you, you've rebelled against God, so God did what we could not do by sending his son, fully God, fully man, fully perfect, to eventually be brutalized, beaten, betrayed, left, murdered, dead, buried, and then risen again. Friends, we're not going to really begin to experience the power of God until we embrace the forgiveness of God. I'm still struggling forward on that. I still want to make it up to myself and my habits and my abilities and my strengths. But maybe next time you feel like you're at the end of yourself, maybe that's a gift. Maybe that's an invitation. Maybe that's an opportunity for you to cry out to the holy, living, perfect God who gave his son for his glory and for your great joy. What would that look like? What would that look like to be a gathering of 100 and 150 adults who know that we're forgiven and starting to live in freedom from our sin? One of the ways that we acknowledge that we're free from sin is not acknowledging it any longer as a master of ours. Our master Jesus took that payment to break those chains. We're free. We're forgiven. Jesus was born to die so that in him we might live. That's the hope of Christmas. That's the purpose of it. That's the meaning of it. That God became flesh and dwelt among us, died, rose again, will come again. That's our hope. Merry Christmas. Let's pray.